Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. I'm Robert Fay in Portland, Oregon, and I'm joined by my longtime friend, uh, Roman Sivkin in New York City. And this week we're going to look at um, a classic book. It's a book that um, uh, whenever I'm in bookstores, uh, wherever I am, I, I see this on the shelf. I think it's become uh, a classic in its own right. It's Vladimir Nabokov's Lectures on Literature. And this is a compilation of lectures that he gave uh, at Cornell University in the 1950s. And this was just before he uh, became an international star with the publication of Lolita in the late 50s. He was a, uh, an accomplished writer up until then. He had written uh, in Europe and the United States, but it wasn't until Lolita, of course, that he became a household name. And so he had to make ends meet, and he... Uh, came up with two courses, uh, one on Russian literature and one on uh, European literature. And in the book, or I should say in his courses, he uh, uh, looked at Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, Flaubert, James Joyce, Kafka, Proust, and Stevenson. And so um, I think for many people, uh, these lectures have become uh, a way to still read some of these books. Some of these books are, are... still quite challenging. I mean, Ulysses and uh, In Search of Lost Time are, are not easy books in a certain way. Um, and so on a personal note, I first saw this volume probably in the early 90s uh, when Roman and I were living together in Boston. And, and Roman, I know you just finished uh, college and you had uh, started <laughs> crushing real hard on Nabokov. And I, and I know you uh, went crazy buying every book. Uh, I, I I still remember yeah, yeah, that, that time. Yeah, that was my first, you know, literary crush, so to speak, uh, where I got all, every, I read pretty much every word that he wrote, uh, both in Russian and in English. Uh, I went through this really crazy period where it was Nabokov all the time. Um, and I was introduced to it in in one of the t- only two literature classes that I took in college. I decided to, because I loved novels, you know, reading novels and short stories so much, I decided not to spoil it by majoring in English. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I avoided literature classes in college, except for two, because I just really had to uh, sort of dig into those two topics. One was uh, Russian literature, because I guess I was Russian and I was enamored with Dostoevsky already. And the other one was uh, a course on Ulysses. Um, and I enjoyed both very much. Yeah. My Russian literature teacher was uh, this uh, Hungarian professor with his huge beard, uh, very soft-spoken, and the first book that he assigned to us was Invitation to a Beheading by Nabokov, an early book by Nabokov that he wrote originally in Russian. It was translated. Um, But it's a very... so, So I remember reading, beginning to read this book and getting angry, Rob. I got angry uh, within the first two pages or so because... I, I remember telling the Professor Dienish uh, that I was really angry that no one has no one has introduced me to Nabokov up until so late in my life. And I was just what, about twenty, I think, um, so because because the prose just dazzled me. It just completely dazzled me. I was like, "What is this? How come nobody's shown this to me before?" Um, it and it it makes me think, Roman, right in the uh, in the introduction to the book. Um, before these lectures, and I think this may have been the introductory lecture that Nabokov gave to the students, he kind of outlines his, essentially, how to read mm-hmm. a, a novel intelligently. And one of the things he said is, 
Style and structure are the essence of a book. Great ideas are hogwash. So style and prose, right? Were, yeah, he was a big yeah, proponent everything. of style and structure over the you know the the ideas of a book. Um, and he was, of course, a supreme stylist himself. I think that's part of the the reason why he was a little prejudiced towards that. But I, for, you know, he also has a very, you know, his book of essays is called Strong Opinions. He's a very opinionated, uh, almost curmudgeonly kind of character. Um, and very, in the sense, elitist. You know, he's, he was always deriding the Philistines and placing art above everything else. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. And I, I, I agree. Uh, yeah, and I think it's important to point out that, like, I think what distinguished uh, Nabokov as a Russian emigre in Europe and North America at that time, and of course there were uh, you know, a, a ton of them, um, is that he was an aristocrat and he also wasn't Jewish. And, and I think this really, he had a very different perspective than a lot of the, uh, you know, the Russians who, who fled uh, the revolution and war and then also then had to flee Hitler. So he had a very peculiar, I mean, privilege doesn't even get mm -hmm. at the kind of youth that he had. I mean, they had the country estate outside of St. Petersburg. His father was connected to the czars in certain ways. I mean, this was a, a connected Well, youth. yes, absolutely. It was, a, it was a white Russian. <laughs> My favorite drink. Um, yes. You know, but <laughs> but he, when he was exiled, uh, all that kind of changed. But he, he internalized that sort of um, uppity attitude, aristocratic attitude. Uh, you know, he he kind of carried that all of his life. Um, I think what America did to him was 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 democratize him a little bit. You know, he he was he was in love with this country, with its with its uh, vastness and its you know its America, all the various Americanisms that he came to you know loathe and love at the same time, like all the motels and Nolita, the roadside stuff. Um, he he almost you know romanticized it. Um, but you, yeah, you're right. In his essence, he was definitely an aristocrat. And when he lived in in, in Germany after he was exiled, um, he really didn't even learn German. He he published in in emigre yes. uh, publications in Russian to a very small audience um, for, for many years. And in fact, as you pointed out, uh, he really you know he he lived by his um lecturing on literature he li he lived on that that's when he you know, became he got a professorship uh, at cornell he was at wesley wellesley before that um people hired him on the on the strength of his obviously of his writing but also basically on the fact that he was very knowledgeable and had very strong opinions about literature yeah and i i, I love this idea that right he goes to germany well he goes to cambridge first which is clearly where he right. i know that he uh he had a nanny who instructed him in English and French as a boy. And then obviously going to Cambridge, the writing, he was able to perfect that. But he, he ends up in in Berlin and right to his standards, doesn't quite read and speak German uh, correctly. But it's in Germany where, you know, I actually love some of those early novels that he wrote, um, like like Glory. Oh, yeah. um, I love that book. Laughter in the Dark are, are quite wonderful. And then to... To then flee uh, Europe around World War II to end up in the United States, and then to again to be doing this in a in a third language. And the the introduction to the book is by John Updike, and he really frames um, 
what Nabokov brought to American literature. And it's a hard idea for me, but you kind of alluded to it. Like he loved this country and considered himself an American writer and that he's a he's a part of American literature. And Updike writes, um, Nabokov had created a brilliant body of work in what amounted to a dying language for an emigre public that was in, inexorably disappearing. Yet in this, his second American decade, he managed to bring an entirely new audacity and panache to American literature to help revive the native vein of fantasy and to bestow upon himself riches and international reputation. So it's, you know, the fact that this guy didn't just end up here uh, because it was um, a place free of totalitarian systems and wars, but he, he gave us something. I love that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, he did. He really did love this country, even though he spent the last 20 years or so of his life outside of it. Um, you know, again, because I think it, he, he is he is a bit of an elitist, elitist. You know, he's got that aristocratic vein, which America totally lacks. So he was always, you know, he was always an, an outsider. I think ever since he was exiled from Russia, he was always an outsider, which is tremendously helpful for a novelist, I think. Um, you know, they have this kind of outsider's absolutely. point of view. Um, you know, and the fact that he was writing in a, in a language that wasn't his own, though, like you pointed out, he he did know English from very very early on. Uh, he was exposed to it; he heard it, uh, so it wasn't exactly a foreign language to him. And of course, he went to Cambridge as well. Um, but at the same time, when you read his early novels in Russian, the ones that he composed in Russian, um, they're very, in a sense, very different from his English language uh, novels. My favorite uh, Russian language novel of his is The Gift mm. or Dar. It's the you know, he wrote in Berlin, I believe, and it's just it's it's sort of a uh, it's a novel about an artist, about a writer, um, kind of par excellence to me. Um, and also Invitation to a Beheading, just because it was my first Nabokov book uh, that started my my slide into insanity. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, when I, when I, I'm having, I guess I'm having a bit of a reaction out in the book of, uh, as I've told you before that I, I just, I simply find it very hard to reread him at this point. Uh, what, what happened I think is because I read so much of, I mean, I read all of his works, both in Russian and English. I even read, <laughs> I even read the, the Russian books that he translated to English, which, and then the, the English books that he translated to Russian, which really didn't work because he has lost, by that time he had lost touch of the sort of the, the nitty gritty of the language and because he wasn't living in Russia. And so the, the translations were not very good as he admitted himself. Um, but but I, I, I think I developed some sort of an allergy to him. Uh, and I remember this, this um, in, in sort of William Gaddis' sense, this, the shock of recognition when I was reading David Markson, one of his note, note card uh, quartets, uh, note card uh, novels, you know, there's four of them with this very short, very short paragraphs about various artists, and um, and he at one point he mentions you know the the, the pinchbeck quality of Nabokov's mm. prose, and that really really hit home to me. I was like, why why can't I gel with Nabokov anymore? How come it doesn't really work? Uh, and I think it's because he really, really tried so hard with his style. He composed, you know, in the bathtub a lot of times, writing on these little, uh, speaking of Markson's note cards, uh, you know, he wrote on note cards. Um, com he composed, you know, these you know, books like Lolita, 
you know, piecemeal. They're very, you know, little pieces by little pieces, and he put them together. And of course, it's it's amazing. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. But there's some sort of sense to me of artificiality, which shows. Normally, I don't like the artificiality they show, but it shows to me. It became exposed to me, and that's why I think it's hard for me to return to Nabokov nowadays. It, you, know, you know, it, know it does, and, and it it really gets to. And he sort of lays this out. He. He uh, he says, "Look, a, a childish reader is a reader who who reads these books as reflecting some kind of truth, or 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 reading historical novel and, and thinking they can learn something about French society in the nineteenth century." And he says, "Look, these are just big fantasies." And what he seems to really like to do in these lectures, and he says this, he says. Great. Let's look at the mechanism of how Jane Austen created Mansfield Park. This is where the enjoyment is. Let's break it apart and look at it. And and the one thing I got from his lectures over the years is um, how just to do that, how to look at the themes, how to look at the formal structure and break it apart. And, And I have to think that these poor, not poor, but these Cornell students in the 1950s who were just probably many of them trying to satisfy some humanities requirement, are getting what I think writing students would get in an MFA these days. Like, you know, he's a writer and writers read differently. Writers need need to understand Absolutely. that. So I, I imagine it must have been puzzling for some of the students to sit there and think like, he doesn't really tell me what this book is about. He simply keeps talking about the the mechanisms that, that right. the author sort of brings. But... Um, I want to mention one thing before we kind of look at a few of the books and so forth is, and again, this gets back to what you were saying about strong opinions. And at the, the, uh, when he was trying to come up with a curriculum, like what books to include, um, he wrote a letter to the critic uh, Edmund Wilson. And if, if people don't know the name, he has a classic book uh, of literary criticism called Axel's Castle, which was published, I think, in the 1930s. And it's basically uh, a collection of his reviews of the modernist writers at the time. And it's absolutely a freaking classic. Um, he, he, he goes through Proust and, and T.S. Eliot and Joyce, etc. But um, he wrote a letter to Edmund Wilson. They had a, a long correspondence and said, you know, what the hell should I put in this curriculum? And Wilson wrote back and said, you absolutely must include um, uh, Charles Dickens' Bleak House and something, and Jane, Jane Austen. Austen. And he says, he says yes. to him, he says, you know, Edmund, I have to admit, I'm prejudiced, in fact, against all women writers. They are in another class. And he pushed back. Edmund Wilson wrote and said, you are wrong. He said, read mm-hmm. Mansfield Park. And uh, Nabokov relented and included and, and clearly... I think essentially says this isn't my cup of tea, but this woman can write. Um, and it's interesting to actually think about that now when diversity in everything is is such a a, a focus. That um, yes, Nabokov would have been the fish out of water in today's environment. He would have been excoriated and 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 roasted yes. online. He wouldn't have had an easy time nowadays. However. For sure. So of course, of course, you know, yeah, he probably would have adjusted as well with the times. Who knows? But that's kind of my. How, my however, I think he was show me the money, and I think if you could write, and I've read Mansfield Park as well, um, 
and it's a fantastic book. He he will respect you. So I I think that you're right. I think uh, any woman who wrote a kick-ass book, um, I I think he's on board. But it is interesting. This is a yeah. uh, these lectures obviously have no there is no political correctness, but there also is is no he's not trying to impose anything on these books. And in at one point he says. Each novel is an entirely new universe, and you must come to it almost like, he doesn't use this word, but as an anthropologist, and just sort of look around and take it for its own sort of value. And I think that's actually a really valuable point of view. And, and, you know, I think we're moving away from the period in the 80s, 90s, where uh, in ideological reading of a text was fashionable. I, I haven't been, I haven't been oh, around yeah, a university yeah. in a long time, but I think we're moving away from that, thank goodness. Um, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's, it's a very different environment nowadays. And, you know, Nabokov was not, he was not a postmodernist by any means, that's for sure. <laughs> he definitely had a, you know, his own perspective and he didn't, didn't allow the fact that, well, not the fact, but you know, the, the supposition that all perspectives are the same. Uh, he certainly was not uh, did not subscribe to that view. Uh, yes, and you know. and uh, you know in the intro he gives a few sort of you know tips, and again he's talking to undergrads you know who are not necessarily literary people, it, including Pynchon by the way. Pynchon oh, was in his class. Incredible, um, right? <laughs> and you know he says notice and fondle details. Um, he says. Caressed them yeah. and fondled them. Yes, very sexual kind of imagery about the details. But he loved the details. I mean, this book, uh, the lectures on literature, basically is uh, it's all about the details. You know, where did Bloom and Stephen Dedalus walk, and how did they pass intersect? What did the room look like where the characters are speaking? You know, what 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 does the street look like where they're walking down? Um, so it's it's very much detail oriented and he hated this whole approach of like well let's see what is the writer trying to say or what are the ideas behind yes, this yes. or you know what's the cultural context yes. though he does the context is, is important to him I mean if you one of my favorite books of his that I still actually read a lot uh, or dip into anyway is um, the the Eugene Onegin translation which is still very controversial I guess because he translated it word for word I mean very literal translation and a ton of notes mostly the book is notes about the cultural context what, are the, what is that you know particular piece of furniture called and why was it important at the time you know all these little details are just crammed into that book and it's just wonderful yes um, he and he has a little bit of this in this book as well, the lectures. Yes, the lecture. he, um, when he, uh, uh, he's looking at Ulysses on his lecture on James Joyce, and he, he both, um, he has a way of, of just cutting through to what the book is about. And he says, look, um, he first says with Ulysses, and this gets to his, his dislike of, of these grand interpretations. He says, uh, Ulysses is a splendid and permanent structure, but it has been slightly overrated by a kind of critic who is more interested in ideas and generalities and human aspects than in the work of art itself. And then he says simply, Ulysses is about, it's a very simple book. It's about two things, bloom and fate. And I, I just love that. Um, uh, mm. and, and Though, you know, he, he also, 
he also didn't like all the sex in, in Ulysses. He thought that Joyce was obsessed with sex and that it was too much. There's a little bit of a prude in him. Uh, somebody who wrote Lolita. <laughs> and and, and that, that would make sense. And there's a certain brand of Irish Catholic prudishness that anyone from the continent at that time would have to find strange. And, and even, even though Joyce had rejected all of that, uh, rejection by its very nature is still a, there's a tie there. There's a residue of, of, con- of conflict. Right. And well, he, he, he basically refused to believe that Bloom was having all these sex, sex thoughts in, in his stream of consciousness. That he, that he just, that Joyce would just like, there's no way any man would be thinking about sex that often. As, as we found out since, you know, through scientific studies, apparently we do, uh, or at least maybe unconsciously, not, not consciously, but... You know, it's always there somehow, you know, at least from the male yeah. perspective. I'm not sure about the female perspective because uh, I'm not a female. But, um, yeah, so it's it has been sort of, I mean, Joyce was kind of right to put all that sex in because we are some, somehow obsessed with the, with, the, with this topic. Uh, but, you know, Buckle was definitely the aristocrat who didn't didn't particularly want that to to be you know, in the forefront totally. too much. You know, it's interesting with, um, again, to go back to this idea of diversity and, and treating women, women writers with the same respect you would treat a, a male writer. He, he, right away, he cautions his students about any prejudices they might bring to reading Jane Austen. And he says, at first sight, Jane Austen's manner um, may seem to be old-fashioned, stilted, and unreal. But this is a delusion to which the bad reader succumbs. And again, I, I, I just I love that. Um, to me, that actually shows a broad-minded uh, intellectual approach. That look, you mm. you have to. I, I've investigated this author, and she brings it. And you know, you must not get distracted by kind of surface things. And it's interesting when he switches to his lecture on on Dickens and Bleak House, he said, okay, so we've just been with Jane Austen, the ladies in the drawing room. Now we're going to switch to Dickens. We're going to be sitting at the table with our tawny port. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I guess the the part that I really got from these as somebody who writes as well is his, uh, how he approached the book was very interesting. Like with with, uh, Mansfield Park and Jane Austen, he says you should notice that there are four ways that he goes about uh, with characterization. And he actually outlines each of them. He says um, Jane Austen will use direct description of a character. She'll use di- directly reported speech, or excuse me, directly quoted speech. She'll use reported speech, and then she will imitate the character's speech when someone is talking of that character. And again, it's uh, just a such a helpful way uh, to think about a book to understand a little bit of what's going on because I think when you write fiction and you write it as brilliantly as he is and you alluded to this it is just a fiction writing is a sleight of hand it's it's um, it's a it's a, a house of cards that someone artfully sort of puts together and I think your average reader or your amateur reader, in a sense, uh, maybe shouldn't be aware of that, but, but certainly isn't aware of that. And I think this is the, the value, certainly of anybody who writes, 
to go through these lectures and look at how a master reads a book. Um, mm. And it's really fascinating to see they're actually mimeographed copies of his handwritten lectures with his notes in the book. And uh, he actually draws out uh, a barouche, which is an old-fashioned carriage that is referenced in Mansfield Park. And he actually draws it out and puts the characters in there. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in with uh, his section, his lecture on Kafka, where he looks at the metamorphosis, he actually draws the bug. Um, and he, he identifies that he's, I think he was one of the first people to, to be so insistent that it wasn't a cockroach or some bug. It was a dung beetle. He, he very specifically, uh, I guess because he was also an entomologist, you know, with his butterflies yes. and all. He was so anal about insisting that this was a dung beetle. This was a major thing for him. And I actually remember <laughs> that's the one thing I remember from that lecture is that mm. so now we know it's, it was a dung beetle. It wasn't a, something else. It wasn't a cockroach like a lot of people assume or it's just a, some generic bug. It was a dung beetle for a very specific you – know, Kafka chose that for a very specific reason. Um, and by the way – uh, speaking of entomology, Nabokov was also, you know, as I, as I mentioned, uh, he, he worked as a as, – he was a working scientist as well. You know, he worked at, uh, at Harvard uh, classifying butterflies. His father, of course, was a major influence uh, uh, on him about that. And Nabokov himself would take these long trips out in the west of the United States, you know, for butterfly hunting. And for him – this goes back to this book where he kind of goes, you know, caresses the details and goes. He's it's a very almost scientific yes. approach, and so he he did he did combine the two sort of worlds of science or, or you know, this rational approach and this artistic approach, the, the enchanter and the rationalist com- combined into one, which I think exactly what made him such a powerful and, writer. Uh, totally, and in fact, in the introduction again on his essentially how-to-read-a-book approach, he says the best temperament for a reader is a combination of the artistic and scientific mind. So you are dead on. That that was right. something unique uh, and special that he sort of, um, that he brought to this. And, and I'm actually just reading um, a book right now by the Cuban novelist um, Alejo Carpentier. And he wrote a book called... Um, explosion in the cathedral and it it apparently is the book that inspired uh gabriel garcia marquez to write uh 100 years of solitude and you know magical realism and all that but um uh carpentier was a um a musicologist and also a scholar of of uh ancient texts and so it's when a writer has some passion and interest outside of writing and literature it really enriches a book and and the musical uh, illusions um, that help really ground the reader in this in this book by Carpentier are, are just amazing and I'm I'm fondling the details in that book and, mm-hmm. and absolutely <laughs> loving it but I, I wanted to ask you kind of your thoughts because one of the the books is Bleak House by Dickens and Nabokov has strong opinions, and John Updike in the intro says his wife actually was were in some of the last courses, and she said to this day, she she uh, conveys his prejudices against 
Thomas Mann and Faulkner, who who he just dismissed, you know. And, and we also know yes. that he, he he might be the one person in the world who thinks Dostoevsky is a is a minor writer. But um, I I actually have my own dismissal of of Dickens, and I just cannot stand Charles Dickens, like the. The endless characters, the play on names. I don't know. I feel like every character is kind of a, an, an allegorical person. And it, the social commentary in this, uh, Nabokov says right away, you know, if you, if you think that Dickens is simply just social satire, and if he was social satire, he would, we should dismiss him. But Nabokov, uh, you know, buys in. And, and, I, and I remember you reading Bleak House uh, years ago because of these lectures, and I know it's been a long time. I mean, what's, what's there with Dickens? I cannot stand him. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, well, first of all, just go back to the, the whole Nabokov uh, influences and how people get, you know, get under his spell and have all these, you know, adopt all these prejudices. I, I was one of those people, you know, reading him in my early 20s. I was very susceptible and I adopted a lot of these uh, these opinions of you know just dismissing writers that I obviously knew that were you know world class. But with Dickens, um, first of all, I have a I, I do love these huge books. I just love the big books. You know, I, something that can can kill a mouse if you drop <laughs> it on top of it. Uh, the, the, I just like I don't know something about the physical sensation of a, of a big, especially if it's just paperback. I just love these huge things that you can just grab with one or two hands and and read for months at a time um so i delved into i dove into um bleak house uh, because of the book of right because i'm like mm, dickens you know you not my taste but i'll give it a shot because of the book of and what you need to do is uh, with dickens i i haven't read you know all of dickens but he's an enchanter just like 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 the book of says he enchants you and you have to let him enchant mm. you. You have to allow that by just reading and, and suspending your your sort of critical faculties, um, and and you start seeing very slowly but surely, especially in a huge book like Bleak House, how much control Dickens has over this vast amount of material, the well characters, said. the well settings, the, the various plot lines, and it just boggles your mind as you keep reading it. And how does he keep it all together? How does he remember this before? This is before, you know, before you know, digital storage and <laughs> ways of looking up you know, keywords really fast in, in your writing. No, he didn't have any of that stuff. He was, I believe, publishing serially, so he would just like write something and publish it, and write another part and then publish it. Um, so it really, it really, you really gain respect for Dickens after reading Bleak House because you realize how, how complex the whole tapestry of the novel is. But yet, for the reader, it's relatively easy to follow. It's not, you know, it's not Finnegan's Wake. There's no, you don't need to go to secondary sources. Um, it's a straightforward story. Yet it's not really. There's a lot of sort of trickery going on there. Um, but it really, it. If you let him enchant you, he will enchant you, and you then you be sort of in this Dickensian world of 19th century London, and you're just you're, you start you start your your brain starts attuning to the various voices, um, and he kept. By the way, all the all the characters' voices are unique and have something unique to them, and with all these characters, again, it just makes you realize 
what a genius the guy was. I mean, it's not something that a regular novelist can pull yeah. off. I, I, I certainly acknowledge that. Maybe, maybe it is simply just he's not my cup of tea and I, and I haven't uh, gone in to inspect the landscape careful enough. Let me let me put it to, to you this way, Rob. If you had only Bleak House with you and you're on some desert island or in some vacation spot and you start reading it, I would guarantee you within half a day, within about 50 to 70 pages, you you just wouldn't want to put it down. You just would, you would, you would not be bored anymore. You would just be like really into it. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah my prejudice is, is just recalling that there seemed to be a certain amount of social criticism of child labor, for example. And, and I, and I well, thought, that's and I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's just Dickens. Yeah. That's, that's just an him. easy target. I mean, any, any writer who, who, who chooses to point out the inequities of some social ill, uh, I'm not impressed that that's, that's easy pickings. But remember he was, he was one of the first people to do it in fiction, at least for, for, you know, British society. Um, and he did it so, so well. He actually precipitated social change. Um, you know, th things would change because they read Dickens and like appalled by things. And then they changed laws and changed things. Um, so it's – but again, I, I – like you I, and like Nabokov, I, don't, I could give a hoot about the social stuff uh, as far as, you know, as far as at least on the practical level because it was 19th century. It's not our thing anymore. Um, but but the, 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 the feelings that he evokes, the pathos, the, the, the usual, you know, Dickens poor child, you know, who gets abused – uh, but the way it's described, the way the context, the richness of the details, um, the voices, the various characters. Yes, yeah, nowadays we're almost thinking of them as caricatures. You yes. know, um, you know Bob Cratchit <laughs> and you know all these, all these kind of like they're Dickensian characters. But remember, when he was writing, it was new, it was fresh, it was it wasn't done before um, to this extent anyway. So he did really break new grounds. He made people think about the society in a different way. And most importantly, and I think this is where Nabokov would agree with us, entertaining. I mean, the guy was an enchanter. Yes. He really enchants you. Now, I wouldn't have picked up Bleak House without Nabokov. I probably would have read something else by Dickens and said, eh, not my cup of tea, and I move, moved on. Um, now, have, I still haven't read all of Dickens. Not like I, I love Dickens. is not my favorite novelist, but I... I'm so glad that I read Bleak House because I feel like I I I I, I understand Dickens at, at least to a certain degree. Not obviously like somebody who's you know, really read everything or a lot of stuff by Dickens, but I can really appreciate what he's done in Bleak House. And it's it's a book that I I remember reading with pleasure. I remember really enjoying it. I wasn't it wasn't like oh it's a classic. I really should read it because Nabokov liked it, you know, and then just kind of forcing myself to read it. No, I didn't. I never do that. By the way, I just, I, if I don't like a book, I just stop it, regardless of who entertained, you know, who um, uh, recommended it. Well, you you um, convinced so, me, man. I, I'm I'm going to have to roll down to Powell's this afternoon and at some point, you know, it's one of those. It's a project. It's a yeah. big book. It's a huge book. Um, but listen to Nabokov on this one. I'll have to do that. <laughs> Um, I, I, I have to, I have to make sure we talk about Proust because, you know, he's my obsession and, and, and if you go uh -huh. to SoundCloud, our Feeling Bookish SoundCloud page, you'll see that we have a, an image of, of Joyce and Proust, um, which is sort of the two, the two leading lights for us, you know, and one of the things he, he says about reading, 
uh, Proust. And in this book, because In Search of Lost Time is seven books and uh, you can't really teach that in a course. And he doesn't even teach all of Swan's Way here. He actually just teaches like part one um, or goes through part one of the first book of In Search of Lost Time, which is Swan's Way. And he makes this wonderful statement. He goes, he says, to the superficial reader of Proust's work, and then we have an M dash, rather a contradiction in terms, M dash, since a superficial <laughs> reader will get so bored, so engulfed in his own yawns <laughs> that he will be unable to finish the book, uh, which is a good point. So yeah, you, you don't, it's, it's not a plot-driven um, experience. But he, um, you know, again, these simple observations about what Proust is doing, and he says that Proust is essentially a prism. And he points out these three stylistic traits of, of this of this massive seven book series. And he says he uses layers and layers of comparisons, like piling up metaphors to really get to something ineffable. And, and this is what I really love about him. And he's, of course, he, he also uses these long kind of jam-packed sentences, uh, which is very Proustian. Um, and again, it's important to think about uh, the context French literature up until this point was characterized by absolute, maybe what we would call minimalism. You know, the prose was very, very simple, very sparse, and, and Proust really uh, opened that up. And then the, um, the other thing that Proust did that uh, Nabokov points out is that he, he started to combine the, the dialogue portions with the uh, descriptive portions, and so that they actually become one and form a new unity. And of course, again, this is just one trick in the writer's tool bag these days. But in you know 1892 or whatever, this was quite a trick. But what I what I want to share with you, Roman, and you may have come across this is um, he takes this these two writers head on, and he he kind of clarifies. So you know, what is the difference between Joyce and Proust? What's going on here? And I think it. It actually really uh, characterizes, you know, you and I are old book friends. We've been talking books for, I don't know, 25 years, but we have very different uh, reading tastes. And so this is what Nabokov said. He said, one essential difference exists between the Proustian and the Joycean methods of approaching their characters. Joyce takes a complete and absolute character, God known, Joyce known, then breaks it up into fragments and scatters these fragments over the space time of his book. The good rereader gathers these puzzle pieces and gradually puts them together. On the other hand, Proust contends that a character, a personality, is never known as an absolute but always as a comparative one. He does not chop it up but shows it as it exists through the notions about it of other characters. Uh, and he hopes, after having given a series of these prisms and shadows, to combine them into an artistic reality. I love it. And I, I this is the aspect that fascinates me about Proust is it's a... It's an endless collage of characters, and and you keep getting mm. layers and layers of, you know, people gossip about character A. You see character A doing something. Um, you meet character A's niece uh, 20 years prior, and so you, because it's such a massive work, you can kind of build up these details. And um, again, I almost wonder with Joyce, uh, in his, you know, Catholic background, you know, there there has to be this God known, Joyce known. The character is the character, and and you know the the authorial uh, person kind of knows this. Where with Proust, maybe there's more of a 
uh, a discovery. Um, like a perspectival kind of thing. Here's a perspective. Here's a perspective. Yeah. Not, not not an all-knowing kind of perspective. Absolutely. But. And 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 I I wonder if you know particularly with Joyce, he uh, Nabokov talks about these are kind of uh, puzzle pieces for the good reader to assemble. And that's the one. That's my one. Um, that holds me back from truly loving reading Joyce. Um, his books, I've yet to read Finnegan's Wake, as I know you will castigate, you continue to castigate me for, but I've read his <laughs> others, and they fascinate me, and they, they feed me. But the, the love of riddle or puzzles, I just don't get this. Well, remember Nabokov was himself uh, quite a puzzle master. He um, he enjoyed um, creating chess problems. He um, there's there's quite a bit of obfuscation in his own fiction. Uh, new puzzles to solve. Uh, some of his short stories are are very much puzzles like that. You know, there's hidden meanings, hidden things to find for the reader, and he kind of gives you little breadcrumbs uh, of clues. Um, and uh, I, I would, I would tend to disagree with that characterization of Joyce, though, because Joyce, for me, because you know, I can't read French in the original, like with Proust, but I can read the original of Joyce in English, and it's for me, it's not particularly the puzzles, you know. I mean, yeah, who's the man in the Macintosh? It could be Joyce. I mean, what? Yeah, you know, it's, it's who cares? For, it's, it's the prose, it's the writing that attracts me to Joyce. Um, you know, so with Proust, I mean, maybe you can help me here because I, I've read, I haven't read all of all of Swan's Way. I've, I've, I've tried. I've, I've tried many times. What I seem to get stuck on is I don't yawn a lot, but I don't, I don't. I know the sentences are long, and I like that, but maybe it's a translation issue. I just, I, I can't quite connect to the actual language. Um, which for me is so important in a writer. Um, so I don't know if maybe in French it's a different experience, but in English I would prefer I would prefer Joyce over Proust just because uh, on a sentence level I enjoy the sound of the prose, the meanings of the prose. Now, yes, there are puzzles to solve and there's mysteries and what's that, what's that. And Finnegan's Wake, by the way, which Nabokov hated. He really did not like Finnegan's Wake. He thought it was a failed experiment, oh. a petrified uh, book full of puns, he called it, I believe. Um, which, uh, you know, uh, I, I just don't think he got it. I don't think he really understood Finnegan's Wake. It's, it's a little bit weird to say that Nabokov didn't get a book. Uh, it uh, sounds like I'm maybe being elitist myself or something, but but he really didn't didn't get it. He didn't get the the this 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 incredible structure for the book. You would have so much fun if Nabokov would have uh, delved deeper into Finnegan's Wake and maybe had some better advice. Maybe talk to Joseph Campbell or somebody. Uh, uh, you know, he might have really really had fun with it. Um, it's not a it's not a book that needs to be agonized over, you know. It, it it needs a different approach than other books because, in my opinion, it is it's sort of like the the novel. There's no other yes, novel. Yes, and, and um, I, I I have to just and maybe uh, you're in New York City, and if I'm not mistaken, do you still attend a Finnegan's Wake uh, seminar? I'm wondering if you can just give them a plug for anybody who might be interested. 
Well, yeah, I haven't been in a while, and uh, we were kind of re re trying to reorganize the group a little bit and maybe restructure it because our, our, our fearless leader, unfortunately, had a stroke and is out of commission. Um, but there is still a meeting every month. Uh, I believe it's every second Wednesday now. It used to be every third Wednesday. Every second Wednesday of the month, it's on the Upper West side uh no no 49th street but in any case um if anybody's interested it's a very good group uh lots of interesting people show up uh you don't have to be very knowledgeable about the book you can be a complete beginner and show up and that's fine it's actually a beginner's kind of um a reading group at this point uh but even if you you know have a phd in joyce you can still get a lot of uh, interesting stuff out of it um org is the website, finneganswake.org. Uh, it's for the New York City Finnegan's Wake uh, reading group. I highly recommend it. Nice. Um, well, we're, we're kind of running uh, out of time here. So um, one thing I do want to just quickly mention before I, I wrap up, Roman, is in terms of like uh, reading Proust and, and, and feeling a little bit maybe alienated from the prose, one thing to keep in mind is uh, English readers have been reading the translation by Scott Moncrief since whenever that was, the 1930s or so. And he, he basically, his translation is a recreation of In Search of Lost Time. And it's very stylized. He, a lot of people um, adore it. it. It's the standard translation. Uh, but Moncrief was an artist in and of himself. And in fact, um, there's a biography that came out two years ago of Scott Moncrief called Chasing Lost Time. He's a fascinating character in his own right. Mm -hmm. um, that's worth it. But it is worth pointing out that um, there have been a wave of new translations and there's a, a, a Penguin, uh, Penguin Classics series where um, they took the approach because of the massiveness of the work that a different translator translated each volume. So you know, Swan's Way, Vermont's uh, Way, etc. So you may want to try one of the modern translations. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so that's, that's a good idea. But, um, Absolutely. I think we've kind of reached our, our, our time. I mean, how can you stop talking about literature? But I, I, guess, I guess we have to. <laughs> so uh, any, any parting thoughts before we wrap this up? It's been fun. Listen, definitely get this book by Nabokov if you haven't, if you don't have it, if you've never read it. Um, it's it's a great introduction to uh, to a lot of the you know to some of these books that he mentions. Uh, just one caveat: don't don't limit yourself to just Nabokov's point of view. Okay, he's definitely like we mentioned has strong opinions, and he will prejudice you against some things that might not you know you don't have to be prejudiced against. So just read him with a grain of salt. Remember that they weren't really meant for publication as a book. They're they're a little clunky, a little you know. They're just lectures. They're transcribed lectures. I mean, he did fix them up a little bit here and there. But it's worth it for unpicking these books. You know, picking them apart, and um, but just you know, have it as to be a start. But don't don't finish there. Keep keep on totally. Going. And I, I would just add that um, if you have not read Ulysses and you're afraid to, um, my first cover to cover success with Ulysses was um, keeping this lecture here because he, he, oh, he yes. helps, he gives you a summary of each chapter so that you're oriented on what's happening, you know, and, and so then you can kind of enter Joyce's uh, magic. So I absolutely, absolutely. recommend this as a, a fundamental guide for reading Ulysses. So, well, I think that's it. We'll, we'll wrap up here. And again, you've been listening to the Feeling Bookish podcast. Uh, my name is Robert Fay, and you can find me on Twitter at Robert Fay One. I'm also going to be writing uh, a monthly art column for 
uh, the aggregator site Three Quarks Daily. So I'll be having a, a column out on August 20th. You can check that out. And uh, Roman Sivkin, uh, he tweets at the popular literary feed at Zen Jew. And you must check out. And Rob, before we, yes, thank you for that plug. But before we just let it go, Three Quarks Daily. Quark is a word from Joyce from Finnegan. <laughs> nice, so, nice tie-in. It's a little, <laughs> there so, you go. So that's it. Uh, we'll uh, be back with another episode. And thanks. And tell your friends about Feeling Bookish. All right, Roman, you have a great day. You too, Rob. Bye. Take care. <laughs>